This was an interview I recorded quite a while ago, so a lot of the news about cold quanta is already out, but listen to this episode to find out how their quantum computers work, then head over to their website to learn more. Take it away, me from the past. All right, so I have on the line with me Paul Lippman, who is the president of Cold Quanta. Uh, Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here, Ethan. Great to be on your show. Yeah, so today we're going to talk all about uh, cold atom quantum computing, what Cold Quanta does. Um, there's some uh, exciting announcements coming out of Cold Quanta we'll get to. Um, but before we get to any of that, uh, give us a little bit of your background about how you got into quantum computing to begin with. Yeah, I've, it's it's a bit of a longer uh, story than maybe some of the uh, the guests you've had on the show. Um, I did my undergrad uh, in physics uh, in the 90, late 80s uh, in, in the UK at Manchester University, which is kind of one of the great physics departments in the UK. And I'd been accepted to do a, a PhD uh, in, uh, of all things, superstring theory. And kind of decided at the last minute, you know, I kind of had enough of being a student. I wanted to get into the business world. I, I took a kind of a right turn into software, spent many years building uh, large scale trading systems for investment banks and eventually found my way to Silicon Valley, where I've been for the last 25 years or so and spent the last decade or so um, as CEO of a number of cyber security companies. Uh, and quantum has kind of increasingly been of, of importance in cyber over the last few years, kind of both from the, the negative aspects, you know, will a quantum computer uh, eventually defeat uh, the public key encryption algorithms, and also from the positive aspects in terms of the implications for uh, quantum secure communications and data privacy. And kind of all along uh, over that time, I maintained my, my passion and my love for physics kind of maybe as a as a physics amateur I guess at this point uh, about four or five years ago I picked up um, there's a series of, of books and online lectures by this uh, very well-known professor at Stanford Leonard Susskind called the uh, the theoretical minimum and I figured you know what I'll, I'll kind of stretch my physics muscles again and picked up the classical mechanics and then the quantum mechanics book and and, and some others as well and so when the time came and I was starting to get interested in the implications of quantum for cyber. I taught myself Kiskit. I got involved in some of the IBM challenges, uh, got involved with a great group uh, out of the UK called Quantum London, um, kind of an interest group of folks interested in the business aspects and technical aspects of quantum. Uh, started to write some articles about quantum that got picked up in, in Forbes. Uh, and then after selling my last company at the end of last year, I got connected with Cold Quanta, and they'd just gone through a capital raise and were looking to bring folks in to help them scale up the business. So joined them a couple of months ago to run the quantum computing business. So awesome. kind of a long a long story, but kind of yeah. brings me back to my physics roots after maybe uh, maybe 30 years away. Yeah, that is definitely a, a roundabout way in, <laughs> compared to some of the more straightforward, ah, I had a PhD and it was in quantum Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it just shows, you know, if, if you have a passion for the field, uh, there, there's a number of different ways into the industry. And especially now as the industry is scaling up, I think we need to be uh, attracting folks from a more diverse set of backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, like like I mentioned in the intro, we're here to talk about cold atom quantum computing. I think best way to do that is just dive right in. Um, could you teach me a bit about the basics? Because 
I know sort of how superconducting quantum computers work, sort of how ion traps, photonics. I haven't really heard anything about cold atom quantum computing. So I'm, I'm going into this pretty blind. Yeah, so cold atom is really uh, the new kid on the block as far as uh, quantum computing modalities are concerned. Uh, and essentially, if you think about it, um, an atom, right, is it's a quantum object uh, by definition. And, it, and it's effectively, you think of it as nature's qubit, right? Every atom is exactly the same if they're of the same family, right? One cesium atom is exactly the same as the next. There's no manufacturing defects. We're not having to manufacture these atoms in, in a fab. Um, uh, and Colquanta really is the world leader in uh, ultra-high vacuum. So we create these pristine vacuum chambers in a very small footprint. You could hold them in, in the palm of your hand. And then we trap atoms in a two-grid uh, array of lasers. Um, and if you think about temperature, what temperature, temperature is essentially motion, right? And so the lasers trap the atoms at points in the grid. And by trapping the atoms and slowing the movement down, we're effectively cooling the atoms. And once we have the atoms in the grid, then we can use a combination of lasers and microwaves to prepare state, to perform gate operations, to take measurements. Uh, and it's a quantum computer operating at ultra cold temperature. Interesting. Okay, so an interesting point here is that um, you're talking about atoms are sort of nature's qubits, right. which is very, very similar to the messaging that like IonQ has. So my question is, how does cold atom quantum computing differ from ion trap quantum computing? Yeah, I mean, I, the, 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 simple, uh, the simple answer to that, I mean, very simple summary is, uh, it's a question of, of scaling. And so for cold atom quantum computing, uh, the scaling, and, and when I say scaling, I'm saying going from today, uh, you know, dozens or hundreds of qubits to eventually thousands to eventually millions. Uh, in cold atom, it's a matter of, of engineering, and there are some significant engineering uh, challenges along the way. With scaling ions, uh, it really, it's more of a science discoveries are required. So if you, if you think about ions, um, you can only trap in, in 1D, whereas with atoms, you can trap in, in 2D with, with light. So you have far more flexibility. And with ions, uh, Coulomb repulsion um, comes into play. And so you have kind of limits as to how close you can pack the qubits together. With, with atoms, you know, in our grid, we're, we're packing them two to three microns apart. So you can have a thousand qubits kind of in the width of a, of a human hair, right? So you can see how you can scale up to very large numbers of qubits uh, quite successfully. Uh, and also with, with ion traps, um, the, the mechanism for gates becomes a lot more complex as the qubit count increases. And, and look, at the end of the day, there will no doubt be multiple modalities that prove out in quantum computing. And, and it may be that different modalities end up being better for one class of problems than another. But fundamentally, as you think about the path to scale, um, certainly we believe, and if you speak to our, our colleagues in the cold atom space, and there's a number of other companies who are playing in this area, I, I think the kind of consistent view is that we have a, a much more compelling path to scale than in, in the trapped ion area. But you know the reality is it's still early in this industry, right? So, so a lot, no doubt, will happen and change uh, over the next few years. 
So you said that you can scale in 2D. Does that mean that you have, um, I guess, uh, a laser source for each like row and each column of the atoms that you've got trapped? Yeah, so essentially we were using a variety of technologies to create the grid. And, it, and it's a 2D grid, but effectively 3D because the laser light is diffracted above and below the plane and these atoms are, are trapped uh, in that grid. Um, today, you know, we're standing up grids of, of 10 by 10. We believe we can scale uh, quite effectively to, to thousands or tens of thousands of, of qubits and, and do that in, again, something that would fit uh, in the palm of your hand. You know, one of the things that's kind of quite interesting, you, you, you talked before about how do you cool the atoms down. So we're cooling the atoms down to just a single digit uh, microkelvin. So five millionths of a degree, three millionths of a degree above, above absolute zero, um, mm-hmm. which is three orders of magnitude colder than superconducting. Uh, typically kind of dilution refrigerator, you're getting down to a handful of millikelvin. Um, but doing that in, in a device that's operating at room temperature, right? There is no dilution refrigerator. There's no cryogenics. Um, so it's quite uh, amazing in a way. Actually, you walk into the lab, you see this this uh, this cell that has the qubits inside, and it's one of the closest, coldest places in the universe, sitting right there uh, on the lab in in the office in Boulder, Colorado. Huh. That's cool. And so, there's is there any cooling involved? Because I know that like photonics. The or at least um, Xanadu's flavor of photonics, you have the actual computation happens at room temperature, but then you need to have your readout architecture be cooled down a bit. There's no there's no cryogenics. I mean, we have cooling in the in the lab itself to keep it within a you know a few degrees of ambient mm. temperature, uh, but there's no cryogenics. Now, conceivably further down the line, there may be some benefits for cooling to kind of liquid helium temperatures uh, as we think about how do we scale to kind of hundreds of thousands or millions of qubits. But in, in the current architecture, uh, no, we're operating at room temperature and all of the cooling is done by by laser light. Okay, interesting. And okay, so you've you've listed that scaling um, is a potential benefit over ion trap quantum computing. And what are some of the other benefits to cold atom quantum computing? Yeah, so so we've talked about the the scaling, talked about the cooling. Um, one of the others is connectivity, um, and so the the way that we do atom to atom connectivity in in a grid of atoms is something called the Rydberg blockade effect. So if we excite an atom to a very high Rydberg state, so a very high principal quantum number, uh, you you essentially these atoms they're kind of two to three, as I said, microns apart and in their ground state uh, they actually interact very weakly when you excite an atom to a Rydberg state for a variety of reasons you get a very strong interaction so Mm. this Rydberg blockade essentially if one atom is in the Rydberg state it pushes the next atom out of resonance and you can't have those atoms be in the Rydberg state simultaneously but that blockade radius is significantly larger than the gap between the qubits so our roadmap gets us to eventually 50 to 60 qubit connectivity. And so this is important for a number of reasons. One, it allows you to do some really interesting things kind of from a logic standpoint, but also B, today, if you have qubits that are not uh, adjacent, say in a superconducting circuit, um, then you have to use swap gates to connect them, Mm -hmm. which inherently adds noise to your your circuit. So there's a whole variety 
of, of implications and benefits for having this large-scale connectivity that you get as a function of the physics of this uh, cold atom approach. Interesting. And so then how do you select which, um, I guess, which two qubits you're going to interact with each other? Do you excite both of them or how does that work? Well, so in terms of how to select which qubits, that's really a function of, of transpiling your circuit logic down to the the individual laser pulses uh, and, and the individual qubits in, in the circuit. And then we're able to, again, using lasers, individually address either a single qubit at a time or multiple qubits uh, to perform two qubit or, or n qubit gate operations. The other aspect, actually, it's kind of an interesting one, um, is we can perform uh, a gate operation on all qubits simultaneously. So, you know, you, you've, and I know you've, from listening to your podcast, you've, you've experimented with Qiskit and other languages. Uh, and oftentimes the circuits you want to uh, perform a Hadamard gate, let's say, on a number of qubits simultaneously. Uh, what cold atom allows you to do, and we do this with microwaves, uh, because the wavelength of the microwave that we're using is larger than the size of the array, because again, these, these are micron spacing, uh, we can actually apply a gate to all of the qubits simultaneously, which again is something that's quite unique to the cold atom approach and is another benefit of that uh, of that particular modality. Interesting. And so then is that, I guess, is that a specific type of gate that you can apply or is it pick your favorite, you know, you can apply a Hadamard to all of the qubits simultaneously? Yeah, so right now we're doing it um, with with Hadamard, uh, but I believe there'll be a broader set of gates that we could apply uh, in the same way. Interesting. That's super cool. Um, and so those are some of the benefits. What are some of the the drawbacks to cold atom quantum computing? Because you know it can't all be good. Yeah, yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, I mean, look, I'll, I'll give you the the simple trite answer, which is it's it's really too early to say, right? There's there's no for, for, for all of the activity and, and progress and announcements and capital that's flowing into quantum computing, there is no quantum computer that has yet demonstrated quantum advantage, right? Uh, or, you know, Google had the quantum supremacy experiment, but real quantum advantage on a real problem of, of actual commercial scientific um, impact. So that being said, if, if you look at where cold atom is today, and, and this is true for us, this is true for our our kind of brethren in the cold atom uh, space. Uh, trapped ion, back to your earlier question, they were kind of, they were the first kid on the block, right? They were a little bit ahead in terms of gate fidelity, coherence time, shot rate, but cold atoms will, will catch up to the same performance level. Um, mm. and, and that will take a little bit of time, but uh, it's simply just a matter of time and engineering. Uh, I think the other is we think about, okay, how does this scale out over time that the limiting factor becomes lasers, right? We use lasers to prepare state, to arrange atoms, to uh, execute gates, to take measurements. Um, I, I think ultimately over time, you'll see uh, uh, that be reduced down in form factor. So what we're looking at and we're experimenting with uh, is what's called uh, PICS, photonically integrated circuits. So this is actually integrating the the diode laser into the circuit itself. And while that is certainly one of the engineering challenges and scaling uh, significantly, it also commensurately will be what enables us to shrink the form factor down, right? There's no reason over time, uh, again, because the size 
of the, the qubit array is so small that we can't actually shrink the quantum computer down to uh, rack-mounted size, for example. You can imagine a, a couple of 19-inch racks, and, and there's, your, there's your quantum computer. So uh, while it's a challenge on the one hand, it, it ultimately becomes uh, a benefit further down the line. Interesting. So you mentioned um, like you'll catch up on coherence times and gate errors and uh, readout errors, all that stuff, which makes sense to me. But I know that there's um, between different architectures, one of the main differences is often the gate time. How does the gate time in cold atom quantum computing compare to some of the other major platforms? So, so gate times for us are, are extremely uh, fast. I mean, measured in in, uh, in microseconds, maybe even in, in nanoseconds. And, and coherence time is vastly higher than the gate time. I mean, out of the gate, we're talking about uh, coherence times kind of in the, the one second for T1 and, and uh, five milliseconds for T2. And theoretically, there's no reason that those can't eventually extend kind of up into multiple seconds, maybe even to uh, to minutes. And it's it's kind of a, a function in a way of the stability of the hyperfine state of the cesium atoms that we're using that give us these very long coherence times. And also the fact that we're operating at, you know, millionths of a degree above absolute zero. So, yeah, uh, go back. You said the the what state of the cesium atoms? So, so our our uh, states that we use for the zero one state are the the hyperfine state states, which is the the hyperfine state is the it's the interaction between the valence electron magnetic interaction between the valence electron and the nucleus, and uh, those those states are actually used as the funnily enough as the international definition of the second is based upon the the hyperfine splitting of the cesium atom. Okay. Interesting. And so it's cesium atoms that you're using. That's that's correct. Yeah, we use cesium atoms. Uh, and for some of our other uh, technologies at cold quanta, we use uh, rubidium. But for the for the uh, computer, we're using cesium. Why why the difference? Why rubidium in some cases and cesium for computing? So 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 good question. You'd have to ask uh, people far uh, better <laughs> educated and smarter than than me. I typically start most of my meetings by saying I'm the least educated person in the room. Um, <laughs> But I, what I will say, though, is the, the benefit of cesium for computing is um, it has this rich uh, atomic structure that enables us to do things like the Rydberg excitation, but also at the same time, very, very simple as a single valence electron that, that we're dealing with. And we have the hyperfine states, which give us this uh, very long coherence time, as I say, for the zero and, and one state. Okay, interesting. And you're cooling these cesium atoms down to almost basically absolute zero. So Mike, I'm wondering how much energy energy does that take? Um, I'm assuming, I mean, you're not cooling that much matter down, but you're doing, you're cooling it way down. So yeah, how much, how much energy it, is that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question. So I, there's a variety of lasers that, that we use in, in the system. You know, some of the lasers are for actually transporting the, the atoms into the, the optical trap. Some of them are for actually holding the atoms in place. Others are for performing gate uh, uh, operations and measurements. Um, the total power, it's interesting, I was talking with our, our head of quantum engineering just the other day um, about my car. I have a, an electric car and, and, and I said to him, yeah, you know, when I'm charging it at home, it's pulling down about 10 kilowatts. And, and what he said really surprised me. He said, well, actually, the energy that we're using for the quantum computer is actually slightly less than that. Um, kind of around seven or, or eight 
kilowatts. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when I can have a quantum computer in my garage running off the same circuit that my uh, that my car is, uh, which is just a surprising kind of coincidence of power levels. Yeah, that is interesting. And so I'm assuming that that, that power draw will scale up as you add more and more qubits. Is that correct? No, if, if anything, actually, it'll go the other direction. Um, uh, because as, as I said before, I, one of the, the big uh, opportunities in reducing the form factor of the quantum computer is on is on the laser side and ultimately reducing the power requirement, integrating the lasers into smaller form factors, if anything, will take the power requirements in the other direction. Okay, interesting. Huh. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't have expected that, but that does make sense. If you're using smaller lasers, they'll be drawing less power. Huh. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, funnily enough, I mean, one of the other interesting things that we do at Cold Quantum, kind of unrelated to the quantum computer, um, we're one of the few places in the world that can actually produce uh, a Bose-Einstein condensate. And we use it with, we do that with much the same technology. In that case, it's kind of cooled to 100 uh, nano Kelvin, so it's an order of magnitude even colder than the than the quantum computer. Um, and so, you know, there's there's a lot of expertise we have in in terms of how do you trap and how do you manipulate the atoms, how do you maintain state, uh, as I say, and that pristine vacuum is a very important part of that equation. Very interesting. So, uh, changing topics a little bit here, um, there's a going to be a 100 qubit machine coming from cold quanta um could you give us a bit of more more details about that because i haven't heard much on that yeah uh, you you will because we're really going to be <laughs> ramping up the amount that we're talking about that as we get closer to the launch uh so we're launching that machine uh towards the end of this year 2021 uh it's called hilbert so named after after david hilbert of course uh, and it will be accessible through the cloud, uh, initially through our, our own cloud, uh, and then a little bit later uh, through public cloud service providers. Uh, initially, and we have publicly announced uh, integration of Qiskit for uh, programming purposes, which is very exciting to me, as that's the only quantum programming language that I know. Uh, but we are looking at other open source languages as well, and, and we're actually talking with the major kind of algorithm and middleware platform providers about potential integration uh, into into Hilbert. Uh, and as I mentioned before, we'll have a, a standard gate set and also this capability to uh, to use global gates across uh, all qubits simultaneously. Uh, our expectation in the roadmap is we'll scale to hundreds of qubits uh, next year uh, and then thousands of qubits within, within two to three years. And again, I'll point out this is a, a gate-based quantum computer. There are others in the atom-based uh, computing arena who are doing uh, what's called analog uh, quantum computers, which is a very different beast from uh, from gate-based digital. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so with the, the qubit integration, or sorry, not the qubit, the Qiskit integration, you have this new uh, ability that none of these other quantum computers have, which is this ability to perform that uh, gate on all of the qubits at the same time. Uh, are, is there going to be new functionality added to Qiskit for that? Or will you take the, on, on your end, on the cold quanta cloud, take the code and then transpile it um, specifically for that? 
Yeah, I will say IBM's been uh, extremely uh, supportive and, and generous with their time in helping us on the transpilation side. Um, and uh, I, I think at this point, an open question as to whether that's something that will be directly within Qiskit or, or something that we'll implement uh, separately. But I, I think we'll have more to say about that as we get closer to the launch date. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, so this is uh, this is a on-the-cloud quantum computer. I can't buy this myself if I wanted to. You know, uh, Ethan, if you have a big enough check, I, I'm sure uh, <laughs> something could be arranged. No, our uh, j- jokes aside, so our, our kind of go-to-market model, um, uh, we, we certainly believe out of the gate that principal demand will be for cloud-based uh, access. Um, that being said, uh, we also have a number of, uh, of partners who've expressed interest in having an on-premise quantum computer and, and, and anticipate supporting that model as well. In addition to those who want to have uh, a dedicated quantum computer that operates in our data center, right? So if a customer doesn't want to have to have the staff and the space and the facilities to actually uh, have the device running in their data center, we we can run it in ours and make it available to them uh, through a dedicated cloud. Yeah, that's something that I hadn't, um, I I just thought to ask, which is, how much maintenance does it take to keep this um, quantum computer running? Because you're, you're, as you said, you're creating this super, um, this ultra vacuum, um, which I'm assuming can't be easy on the components. Um, so, yeah, how much would it take if someone did want to have it on premise? Yeah, so I think there's there's a question of what does that look like today, and then what does that look like over time. So um, today, I think really the the, the, the principal benefit. Uh, for a customer in using Hilbert uh, and the other devices that we will uh, release over the cloud is we're going to be continually upgrading uh, the service. Uh, and so uh, if you're if you're buying a quantum computer for installation on premise, obviously that becomes slightly more uh, challenging. Uh, and in actual fact, the 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 maintenance is not really on the vacuum chamber. Those those vacuum cells will last. We have vacuum cells. We have one actually on the International Space Station uh, right now and some that have been in the field for the best part uh, of a decade. Uh, it's more to do with the lasers and the optics and the electronics uh, that would require some degree uh, of maintenance. But ultimately, over time, as I say, where we want to get to is that this is a fully integrated rack-mounted device. You can run in a data center but obviously that will take some time to get to that eventual endpoint. Yeah, of course. Uh, and you, you mentioned this very, very briefly, but I, I want to circle back to it. Um, you said you're scaling up or plan to scale up to 1,000 qubit machine um, in the next the three or so years. Um, is there any theoretical limit to how much the cold atom quantum technology can scale to on a single chip? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, and, and I think uh, the reality is that uh, we'll know a whole lot more about that as we start to scale. You know, uh, we believe we can scale to 10,000 qubits in, in a single vacuum cell. That that seems perfectly uh, addressable with the, the technology we have today. Uh, it's possible that we could get to millions of, of qubits in, in a single cell. Again, if you think about the, the size, I mean, they'd certainly fit inside uh, a single cell. Um, and, and if not, then we would have a number of cells that are photonically integrated uh, and local to one another within the device. Uh, but the point is, even when we're scaling to a million qubits, right, if you think about superconducting, you've got these uh, this challenge of, okay, now I have to create a football 
field size dilution refrigerator like how does that even work um we'll still be doing this at room temperature using the same laser cooling approach it's just a question of how do you scale uh up the uh the lasers and the electronics and the optics to be able to uh to address and manipulate uh, atoms at that side of that kind of scale yeah yeah so by when you're increasing this scale up to a thousand qubits you're not changing the size of your vacuum chamber at all you're just adding more uh, qubits and lasers exactly interesting yeah i guess that that i was sort of thinking that you would need to increase the size at some point but since everything is so small it can it can really it can really pack down <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely i mean you bear in mind you know we're talking about the cell is something that fits in in the palm of your hand um it's kind of the size of a uh if you think about a uh a, a, a candy bar something something like that maybe a large candy bar um and, and the qubits again are, are spaced two to three microns apart uh you obviously have a lot of, of room to play with there hmm. yeah interesting and so then i guess the biggest the biggest challenge there is still the lasers that it all comes back to that's kind of the bottleneck for all of this yeah, it's 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 the bottleneck, but it's uh, I would describe it as it's it's engineering work that needs to be done. Yeah. We don't require kind of new science to be discovered in order to scale up these uh, devices. Hmm. Yeah, is there any is there anything about um, if if you were to yeah, I guess yeah, my question is, could you theoretically? increase the size of your vacuum chamber and add more qubits if you somehow do put a million in one of these vacuum chambers and you want to add more? So so I, I think, as I say, uh, the question right now that we're focused on as a company is to get the 100 qubit machine up and running and operational for, for customers. And from there, scaling up, we're actually working on a project um, with uh, DARPA, um, which uh, we're uh, involved in to uh, to develop, and, and actually, in this particular project, is kind of focused on uh, applications of algorithms in quantum computers of scale of a thousand qubits. That's the next target. Uh, once we pass the hundred, is to very quickly get to a uh, thousand. Obviously, with with increasing connectivity, getting to that fifty or sixty goal, increasing uh, fidelity uh, as well. Uh, and ultimately, beyond that, to a million, um, we have a, a number of research projects underway internally to determine how do we scale much further than that, but uh, still very early days. Yeah, good answer to a question. I know I'm asking you to go way too out, way too far out in the future. Um, we'll, we'll get but... there, and when we do, <laughs> Ethan, you'll be the first port of call to talk about it. Awesome. Uh, so we'll bring it back to today. And last three questions. First one is. What do you see as the biggest problem in quantum computing today? So um, I think uh, in terms of the biggest challenge, I mean, there's obviously as many challenges, uh, kind of obvious challenges in terms of uh, the algorithms and in terms of the, uh, the hardware. I, but I think underlying all of that is the biggest challenge is uh, talent. And, and, and I say that from two perspectives. One, in terms of the pipeline of talent to come into the industry to enable us to really execute on the promise. Um, and that's both on the hardware side, uh, in all of the modalities, uh, it's on the algorithm side, software side. And, and I, I'm, I'm encouraged when I see 
the government start to spend on programs to, to encourage and fund uh, quantum education. The QEDC, which is the Quantum Economic Development Corporation, which is a, a, a kind of an amalgam of all of the leaders in the quantum industry, actually had a, a great program that they did a few weeks back on uh, quantum education in high schools. And I, I really do think it starts that early. I think on the other side as well, it's the uh, quantum education uh, on the non-technical side for, for business people and business leaders to be thinking through how quantum technology could be utilized to help advance the state of the art in, in their businesses and, and their fields. Because I think we're making all of these incredible capabilities uh, available, but it's still really in the domain of uh, really kind of a small handful of individuals who are really kind of thinking about this forward-leaning companies that are thinking about, okay, if I had a fault-tolerant quantum computer or even uh, a powerful NISC-era quantum computer, how might, how might I use that to really advance the state of the art in, in my business? So I think, you know, it's incumbent upon all of us. I think you're doing a great job as part of that with the podcast. There's groups, as I mentioned before, like uh, Quantum London, who are involved in how do we educate the general population, the general business population, and, and kind of develop that talent over time, I think it's going to be really important to kind of uh, help to, to move this industry forward. Yeah, awesome. And so then now I'll ask you to look into the future again. Uh, what do you see as the biggest promise in quantum computing in the next five to 10 years? So that, that's a really good question. I, I, I think there are two that kind of jump to mind for me. Um, and I, I think one of them, you know, probably the greatest or one of the greatest existential challenges of our time is, is climate change, right? And I, I think there's a ton of opportunity, maybe even fairly near term, for quantum computers to help in the reduction of CO2 emissions, right? So whether that's in the material science area to help uh, discover new materials that make that possible, uh, it could be in traffic optimization, right? The traveling salesperson problem to help reduce emissions. Um, uh, even in, if you think about how data centers are enormous uh, energy uh, uh, hogs, uh, there's a lot of work being done in, in how you could apply quantum computing algorithms to reduce energy utilization within data centers. And even frankly, in, in certain classes of problems that today we use highly expensive and highly uh, energy consuming classical computers to the extent we could replace those with quantum computers, could we reduce the world's dependence on energy? So that's one. And I think the other one kind of going back, you know, I talked about how I came full circle kind of career wise to back to physics again. Uh, you know, one of the things that always really fascinated me about physics as a subject was, you know, the ability to understand at the most fundamental level, how does the universe work? Um, I mean, even to Feynman's point about, you know, if you want to if you want to model nature or emulate nature, you have to do that with a quantum computer. There's a ton of really interesting work uh, that's being done around uh, utilizing quantum computers to understand black holes, to understand unification theories, to understand uh, how the universe works. And so to me, uh, while maybe not as uh, important from a societal impact as climate change, it's an absolutely fascinating promise of application for quantum computers that I think we'll see a lot more of over the next two to three years. Yeah, awesome. 
And uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, Cold Quanta, what you're working on? So uh, Cold Quanta, just go to coldquanta.com. You can follow us on LinkedIn, follow us on Twitter. uh, And uh, to follow me, you can follow me on LinkedIn or at Twitter at at Paul Lippman. Awesome. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. I loved learning about cold atom quantum computing. And uh, yeah, we'll have to have you back. Great. Look forward to it. Thanks very much. All right. So since I published the last episode a week ago, there are no questions or corrections for this episode. If you have one, feel free to reach out to me on Minds via email or Anchor voice message. Links for all of those are in the show notes. As per our usual arrangement, all the links to the things that Paul and I talked about, like the Cold Quanta website, their LinkedIn, Twitter, his LinkedIn, Twitter, all that's in the show notes. Um, I'd like to give an update on the quantum computing zero to hero, um, in case anyone's interested. I've gotten one vote for uploading both to Minds and the podcast, so currently that's my plan, since that's the only vote I've gotten. Um, also, the first meeting, our stream, or whatever I'm going to call this, will be on January 1st from 14 to 15 Eastern Time. Um, That's 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, for those of you who don't use 24-hour time. If you'd like to support me so that I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link to that in the show notes. Or send me some crypto. I've got addresses for those in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.